The title of my message today from 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 is Why God Allows Suffering. Why God Allows Suffering. A serious issue for nearly everyone. Some who view it more in general terms and others who deal with it when it personally applies to them in times of difficulty. But the question is often raised in the minds of some, if God is both omnipotent and loving, why does he let people suffer? If God is a God of love, surely he would not want people to suffer. And if he is all-powerful, then he's able to stop suffering. So why is there suffering in this world? Why is there so much suffering in this world? I well remember about 25 or 30 years ago now, walking down the hall in Duke Hospital and overhearing two ministers talking. And I heard one of them reporting something that I couldn't hear distinctly, and then the other one said, I hope you told them that God didn't have anything to do with this. And the other one said, oh yes, I assured them that God is not the one who allowed this to happen in their lives. And I went by shaking my head, wondering how in the world those poor people were going to find comfort in the idea that God is not powerful enough to control all of the events of our lives. You see, they were trying to deal with this dilemma. How a God who is all-powerful on the one hand and loving on the other hand would allow suffering. And for these ministers, their explanation was far from satisfactory and certainly not helpful. But to many, this conundrum calls God into question. Because there is suffering in the world, that proves that either God is not omnipotent, as Christians claim, or else he's not a God of love, as Christians also claim. Because few consider that suffering serves a loving and gracious purpose in the all-wise design of God. But that is exactly what the Bible teaches us through and through, both in the Old Testament as well as the New Frequently, the problem of trials is addressed. We find it often coming up in the book of Psalms. We find it dealt extensively in the book of Job. We saw it previously in our preaching series through the book of James, and now we are confronted with it once again in 1 Peter, right here in the beginning, the opening opening verses of 1 Peter's epistle. We are faced once again with this universal problem of suffering and the question as to why God not only allows suffering, I chose that word because that's the way most people put it, but we really need to understand why God designs suffering, why God purposes suffering in this world, yes, in the lives of his children. And so all of us need to understand better the nature and purpose of trials, or at least to be reminded of these truths as we all face trials from time to time and are tempted by our adversary to forget what we know and to blame God for these trials. So let us go back to school today and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And in these verses, we will find, number one, why God's people rejoice, number two, why God's people groan, and number three, why trials are necessary. First of all, why God's people rejoice. For our text begins with these words, In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. And the question is, in what do you greatly rejoice? And, of course, that takes us right back into the context to verses 3 through 5 that we looked at last Lord's Day. And the answer to that is, you greatly rejoice, number one, because you have been born again. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's people rejoice because we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. We have been born again into the family of God. And by the abundant mercy of God, through the power of Christ's resurrection, the same power that raised Christ from the dead has raised us to life through faith in Christ Jesus. And we of all people have much reason to rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice because you have been given a living hope. Also in verse 3, we were begotten again to a living hope. A hope that the Spirit of God within us keeps alive and active and growing by the power of God. A hope that fixes our eyes upon the future and recognizes what God has in store for His children. We greatly rejoice, number three, because we have an incorruptible inheritance, which really is the bulk of this idea of the living hope. But Paul, uh, Peter rather, emphasizes this. We have an inheritance in heaven that is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. An inheritance that can never be taken away from us. It can never be stolen. It can never be destroyed. It can never be whisked away. It is there, kept by the power of God. And because we have an incorruptible inheritance that awaits us, we greatly rejoice. And number four, we greatly rejoice because we are kept by the power of God. God is not only keeping an inheritance reserved for us, but He's also preserving us until that day when we can be brought to our inheritance. And so... Why wouldn't a child of God rejoice in the light of all of these things? In this you greatly rejoice. A Greek word that is a strong word for intense joy. Greatly rejoice is the way our translator puts it because the translators recognize that just using the word rejoice, and it is just one word in the Greek, not two, there is no no word greatly in the Greek language, but because of the word that was chosen, something more seems to be called for. This is not the normal word for rejoice, but this is the word that is used less frequently and reserved only for the most intense forms of joy, and it is used of deep spiritual joy in God and what He has done. And that's the only way it is used in the New Testament. This joy is always used of the believer's joy in God and in the things that God has done. And it is a a jubilant joy. A thankful exaltation. It is the word that Christ used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in verse 12 of chapter 5, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Actually, both of the Greek words for rejoice are used in that, that verse. Rejoice is the more common word. But be exceedingly glad is this word. 
Again, the translators had to beef it up a bit. They couldn't just say rejoice and be glad because this word means so much more than simply rejoice or simply be glad. It means greatly rejoice. It means be exceedingly glad. And isn't it interesting that Christ used this word, this instruction for joy, command for joy, in the context of suffering, just like Peter does. Blessed are you, said Jesus, when men revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ seems to link our suffering, our persecution, with the reward that we shall have someday in heaven. And that's exactly what Peter tells us here. There is a link between our suffering and the greatness of our future reward. Furthermore, this word is in the present tense. It is continuous. Rejoice and keep on rejoicing. In this you are greatly rejoicing continuously all of the time here upon earth until you go to heaven. And of course that will be unending joy and rejoicing. You continuously rejoice even when you are nearly overwhelmed by trials. Our joy is not undermined by trials. How do you measure on the joy meter this morning? On a scale of 1 to 10, how great has your rejoicing been up until this time today? And if it isn't up there at 10, then you should, we should together ask the Lord to intensify our joy, to fix our eyes more upon our heavenly inheritance so that we can, with heartfelt praise, rejoice and give praise to God and truly joy in what the Lord has done for undeserving sinners in saving us by his abundant mercy and marvelous grace. So why people, why God's people rejoice, but number two, why God's people groan. And there's the reality of suffering. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why do God's people groan? Because of the trials of life which are real and are difficult. And in verse 6, there are four facts concerning these trials of life. And let's look at them, taking them in reverse order, because this will help us. What about the trials of life? Well, number one, they are diverse. Various trials is the way that Peter puts it. You have been grieved by various trials, which means all kinds of trials. The word is literally many-colored trials, like Joseph's coat of many colors. Not like his brother's coats of one color, but Joseph's coats of many colors. Our trials are not of one kind, they are of many kinds. We have variegated trials, we have multifaceted trials, all kinds of trials. So many types, so many ways that trials can assail us. That's exactly the same word that James used, remember? In James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Same word. And same instruction. Count it all joy when you fall into 
all kinds of trials, whatever they are, wherever they come from. The many, many, many different trials of life that all of us will face from time to time. We need to recognize that trials are diverse. They come in all different shapes and sizes. And they come in ways that we don't expect when we are looking for a trial over here. A different kind of trial, entirely different, sneaks up behind us. And sometimes we are ill-prepared. So we need to understand that trials come in so many different forms. Sometimes we have financial trials. And the pressure is great as we just don't know how we're going to stay afloat. Sometimes we have serious health problems. And that seems to eclipse everything else. When you are wondering if you're going to live or die, when you're wondering if you're going to be severely incapacitated for the rest of your life, that becomes a trial that seems to crowd out nearly every other consideration. Sometimes we are bereaved by the death of a loved one who is near to our hearts, and we are greatly sorrowing. Oftentimes we find difficulties in the relationships of life. The people around us, in our family, on our job, in our neighborhood, in our church. Trials. Trials. All different kinds of trials. It occurs to me that it is the relationship trials that are probably the only ones that we think we can successfully bail out of. And I would just remind you that we should view troubles in relationships the same way we view, we, we view other trials that God brings into our lives. When God brings a financial reversal, we look to Him for for help and relief, and when he brings it, we thank him. When we have a health problem, we recognize God is doing something, and we're going to have to work with him and wait on him until he is pleased to bring that to a satisfactory conclusion or to accept that perhaps he will not. And likewise with other trials. But so many times when we're having a problem with a relationship, our first thought is, let's get out of this relationship. Get out of the marriage. Change jobs. Find another church, whatever it is. Not recognizing that relationship trials are some of the trials that God brings into our lives for wise purposes. He's wise and gracious in what He does. And He, many times, wants us to work through these trials until we are further sanctified, until our faith is tested. Now, it's not that it's never God's will for us to change jobs or or change uh, whatever relationship, sometimes it is. But we're all too quick in that. We, we need to be sure that that is really what God is doing in our lives, is bringing out about some kind of change, because we are so quick to bail out of the relationship problems. But trials are so varied, so diverse. Secondly, they're painful. They're painful, for, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved. You have been grieved by various trials. You're grieved because they hurt. We have in this same verse the two extremes of emotion. Greatly rejoice on the one hand. You have been grieved on the other hand. And both of these are words that speak of our emotions. The feeling of intense joy because... Of the truth that we know that God has an inheritance in store for us. And we're looking forward to the fullness of our salvation. And by faith we believe that to be true. And it brings the emotion of joy into our souls. But there is also the emotion of grief. 
the intense grief we feel when these difficult circumstances are pressing, 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 pressing in upon our life. And sometimes we feel like they are about to crush our soul, to extinguish what life we have. And there is this great feeling of grief, this intense emotion, this distress caused by the circumstances of life. Grief. We've been grieved, sometimes by physical pain, sometimes by mental anguish, various griefs and sorrows and anxieties, worries that press in upon us. And the joy of our future inheritance does not make the distress of present circumstances any less real or any less troubling. The joy of our future inheritance, which is very real, does not make the intense grief, the emotion of sorrow over our present circumstances any less real. It is not that our greatly rejoicing drives out our grief. It is that our greatly rejoicing undergirds our grief. But both are very real. And we need to understand that. Christians are not Stoics. Christians are not those who are to train themselves not to feel emotion, neither intense joy nor intense grief, to keep everything controlled, just don't feel anything. That's the way the Stoics handled life, the way not to be hurt, the way not to be upset by the the various changes and And uh, vicissitudes of life is to just train your soul not to feel grief and not to feel joy. Just to be on one even level all the time. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. We will have great rejoicing. We will have intense grief. And we feel these very keenly in our soul. And we experience them and we deal with them. And we don't try to banish them from our existence. If you are incapable of feeling joy, then you probably won't feel grief. And if you are incapable of feeling grief very deeply, then you probably will be incapable of feeling any great joy. The joy and grief are are real and deep emotions. And so... Of trials, number one, they are diverse, and number two, they are painful, and number three, they are purposeful. And this is such a great comfort. They are purposeful. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. You have been grieved by various trials. If need be, if it is necessary, or maybe better to put it, you will suffer a trial only as it is necessary. You will suffer suffer trials only when they are necessary. That's what this is saying. You will suffer a trial only when it serves a God-ordained purpose. Only then. Never any other time. God does not needlessly afflict people. God is gracious and God is wise. And God does not needlessly afflict people. 
The problem with the question of suffering assumes that suffering has no good purpose. And therefore, if it has no good purpose, then God shouldn't bring it if he's able to stop it or if he has love. But it overlooks the fact that the Bible teaches us that trials not only have purpose, they have a very wise and important purpose. They have indispensable purpose in our lives. And we can be sure that no trial will come into our life except it is serving a carefully designed divine purpose. Never any other reason for a trial. That's why Ron Hamilton wrote, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord. Though your testing seems long, in darkness he giveth a song. And then he wrote, now I can see, testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best, and I trust in his care. Through purging more fruit, I will bear. Oh, rejoice in the Lord, he makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried... And purified, I shall come forth as gold. Exactly what Peter has told us here. Exactly what Peter has told us here. And so the trials are purposeful. Trials don't come into our lives because of inadequate faith, as many are teaching in Christendom today. And many of God's children are troubled by this and are, are sorely off balance because of it. Because when you have the idea that you shouldn't have trials, trials are not the normal part of the Christian life, or trials aren't something that ought to be experienced by a believing Christian who has faith in God and who is living in a way that pleases God, then when a trial comes in your life, you say, why am I being tried? And if you can't find an obvious reason, then you must conclude that your faith is sorry. It's inadequate. It's terrible. But that's not true. That's not true. That's a lie of the devil to upset you, to get you all in a, in a pity party and in a swirl and in, a, in, in um, spiritual depression and, and uh, having questions that have no answers as long as you're thinking that way. You'll never bring yourself out of the morass of, of depression because of trials when you're thinking that way. But the Bible teaches just the opposite. God tries us because we have faith. God tries us because we have valuable faith. God tries us because He's going to take the faith which is very real, and up until this time has been very adequate, and He's going to refine it and make it even better and stronger for His glory. So trials are purposeful. And number four, trials are temporary. Thank God for that. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now for a little while. We've all heard about that country preacher whose text was, and it came to pass. His exegesis wasn't very good, but his theology was right on target. The trials came, but they came to pass. Praise God, brethren. They're not here to stay. They came to pass. Well, that's exactly what Peter is teaching. Trials came not to stay. They come 
to pass. They will stay only as long as they are needed. They will stay only as long as they are accomplishing God's purpose for our lives. And not one minute longer. And the trials are temporary. Therefore, a little while. Therefore, a season. Now, we will have some trials all the way to the end of our life. But even in that, the season is short. Brothers and sisters, compare life with eternity. Those of us who've got a few more years on us than some of you can, can understand this perspective a little bit better. Things that seemed so long when we were young seem so short today. October 28, how, how far are we from Christmas? Is that a long time or a short time? For a six-year-old, it's an eternity. It's forever. For grandpa or grandma, it's, it's just around the corner. It's, it's just almost here. I don't know if I'll be ready. It's all relative. It's all a matter of perspective. And our time on earth, dear friends, I promise you, is very short. What if we live a hundred years? What's that in the light of eternity? We sing, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, there are no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Yeah, 10,000 years will just be a drop in the bucket in eternity. 10 million years. We change that sometimes when we've been there 10 trillion years or something like that to beef it up a bit. Because it's the same truth. 10 trillion years is just a drop in the bucket in comparison with eternity. What's 100 years in the light of 1,000? What's 100 years in the light of 10,000? What's 100 years in the light of a million years? What's 100 years in the light of eternity? Even if we are severely tried all of our lifetime, and some people are tried more than others, God has his various purposes, and some people are tried more than others, and God is the master of that. He is the designer of that. He knows why he does it that way. But if we are severely tried all of our days upon the earth, what will that be in the light of eternity? It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Trials are temporary. And knowing that suffering is temporary and purposeful makes it more bearable. It's not that it's not, that it's not difficult. It is. And don't pretend like it's not. Peter isn't telling us to sing a happy tune and pretend that we don't have trials or we don't feel grief. That if we'll sing songs of happy, 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 happy all the time, that somehow we can drive the grief and trials and sorrow and, and difficulty from our minds and we won't experience it. That's not what the Bible is teaching us at all. It's saying, yes, it's real. Yes, you will experience it. In fact, you need to experience it. You need to embrace it. You need to taste it to the full. You need to drink it down to the last drop because God has a purpose in it. But remember, it's only temporary, and it's really very short, very short in the light of eternity. So that brings me, number three, to why trials are necessary in verse 7. And now Peter tells us more about God's purpose in trials and tells us why they are necessary. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why are trials necessary? Very simple. Number one, to test our faith. Number two, to bring us commendation. 
require trials necessary to test our faith. And we've already alluded to that. But verse 7 says that the genuineness of your faith. That's a Greek word that means your faith being tested, proven, and found genuine. Found real. Found valuable. It's a word that's often used of refining metals, such as gold, the metal that Peter mentions in this verse. Gold being the most valuable metal of Peter's day, probably the most valuable anything in Peter's day. And gold was very durable, and gold was the standard of wealth, the universal standard of wealth all across the world in this first century. And gold was virtually indestructible. And yet it's not imperishable. It's one of the most durable substances that we have upon earth. You can put it in the refiner's fire and all it does is burn up the impurities. It burns out the dross and it makes the gold more pure, more valuable all the while. The gold just keeps getting better and better while other things are consumed by the fire. And yet it is possible to have a fire that is so hot that it will even cause gold to turn from liquid into a vapor. It would have to be a very intense fire, probably hotter than was possible in Peter's day. And of course, the day is coming when this whole world is going to be consumed, when the whole world will be burned up. Peter himself tells us that in Second Peter chapter 3. In other words, all of this universe is going to perish someday as we know it, and that includes the gold that's on it. And furthermore, Whatever gold you have in this life, the day is coming when you won't be able to have it anymore. It's going to perish as far as your your uh, use of it, your possession of it is concerned. As valuable as gold is, and as durable as gold is, and as um, as illustrative as gold is, the fact that it's that it's a good illustration of what God is doing in testing our faith, namely putting our faith to the fire and burning out the dross, which is not true faith, and leaving a more pure, less defiled faith behind, just like gold is, is purified. But gold is going to be gone someday, but faith will never Be destroyed. And so like gold, trials burn away the impurities in the believer's faith. They burn up the dross. The dross is anything that is not true faith. And our faith is mixed with dross, isn't it? It's mixed with impurity. We, we know that. We know that our faith is not all that it ought to be. We know that our faith is not unmixed faith. We have faith that is mixed with unbelief. We have faith that is mixed with error. We have faith that has many impurities in it. And God says, I know that, and I value the faith that is there, that is real, and I'm going to make it better. And I know how to do it. And there's really only one way to do it. And that's to put the fires of testing to it so that everything that is not true faith will be burned away, leaving only the genuine, valuable, durable, imperishable faith behind. 
And when our faith is put to the test, the faith that emerges is more precious and more durable than gold. That's what he's saying. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. Why? Because gold perishes. Gold, though it is tested by fire, still perishes eventually. Gold, though it's very durable, and and when it's tested by fire, in our experience, it mostly demonstrates its durability, but even that will perish someday. But your faith is more precious than gold. Your faith is more durable than gold. If it's real faith, it's going to continue on for all eternity, better, stronger than ever. Now, faith that does not endure testing is not genuine. So-called faith that does not endure testing is not genuine. You see, Peter is dealing with the same issue that James was dealing with in his epistle. The difference between professed faith and genuine faith. Not everyone who says he has faith has genuine faith. Not everyone who says he believes truly believes. And so, in the testing, God sorts out Genuine faith from spurious faith. Genuine faith from counterfeit faith. He sorts it out in people. Some people have what they call Christian faith, but it's only an empty profession. And the trials of life generally make that very clear over a period of time. And all of us have a mixture of genuine faith and then faith that probably is not genuine. We have all kinds of myths and fables and misconceptions and things that we think are faith that are not really faith at all. And it's the trials of life that burn away the counterfeit and leave only the genuine. And that's why God's people like to sing with the songwriter, Oh, for a faith that will endure, though pressed by many a foe, a faith that always stands secure through every earthly woe. That will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod, but in the hour of grief or pain can lean upon its God. A faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without. That when in danger knows no fear, in darkness feels no doubt. A faith that keeps the narrow way till life's last spark is fled. And when a pure and heavenly ray lights up a dying bed. Lord, give me such a faith as this. And then whatever may come, I'll taste even here the hallowed bliss of an, an eternal home. That captures what Peter is telling us just beautifully. Trials test our faith. Trials validate our faith. Trials show us what our faith is made of. God doesn't need to know, but we do and others do. And trials validate our faith. It becomes a testimony both to us and to others. When we go through trials and find out that we are still trusting, still holding on to Christ and to His Word, still clinging to Christ through the tears and the sorrow, then we have the confirmation that our faith is genuine. It's God-given faith. It's indestructible. And the more trials we go through like that and come through still trusting God on the other side, the more certain we are of the genuineness of our faith 
And the more evident it becomes to those around us that the faith in that life is real faith. Who do you know has real faith? It's the Christians who have been through severe trials and are still believing, still rejoicing, still praising God, still pointing others to the goodness of God, still teaching others how to trust the Lord. When someone has been through severe trials and is still believing, you know that that's a genuine believer. And you know that you can be helped by that person. Well, that's what God does in all of our lives. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So trials are necessary, number one, to test our faith, and trials are necessary, number two, to bring us commendation. Commendation. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It might sound at first like this is saying that your faith will be better able to praise God and bring Him honor and glory, but that's not what it's saying. Incredibly, what this is saying is that at the revelation of Jesus Christ, God is going to praise His children. God is going to glorify His children. God is going to honor His children. God is going to publicly commend His children. He's going to publicly commend our faith, our tested faith, our faith that has demonstrated its genuineness by going through these trials. Sometimes there's not a great deal of reward for our faith here upon the earth. Oh, there is some, no question about it. True children of God experience it. But it seems like in this world, what is rewarded is financial success or other kinds of worldly success. People who, who really believe the Bible and are more interested in Christ and things eternal than anything else and are not interested in impressing this world and are just interested in pleasing God and trusting Him and following Him, they're not the people who get the praise and the laud and the honor and the commendation. They're not the people who get the rewards and get, get uh, big applause here in this world. But you just wait, dear friend. You just wait. You just wait till the Lord comes and then see what it's like for God's children. And our faith can only be rewarded and commended in the final day because God's purposes in our trials are not fully revealed until then. The full revelation of all that God will accomplish through the suffering of his saints cannot be seen until that final day. But then it will. Then it will be revealed. Then it will be clearly manifested, not only for us to see, but for all the universe to see. This is going to be a public commendation. And so, your faith, your faith, The genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to receive praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
praise. That's public recognition and approval. God's high praise of genuine faith. Isn't God good? The faith that He gave, the faith that He refined, the faith that He is responsible for, He is going to commend us for. He's going to honor and praise His children because of the genuineness of their faith. He's going to point out to the world how this child of God went through this and that and the other deep trial that would have toppled nearly anyone, but they came through still trusting Christ. God is going to hold that up as an example, a shining trophy for others to see. That's what he did with Job. That's what he's going to do for all of his children in a much greater way at the coming of Jesus Christ. Well done! Thou good and faithful servant. The whole universe is going to hear that. Well done. You exercised genuine faith. But Lord, you gave it to me. Well done. You exercised real faith. But Lord, only by your help and strength and power, I couldn't do it alone. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Glory. We'll participate in Christ's glory. Glory belongs only unto God. And yet in some mysterious way, the children of God are going to participate with Christ in his glory. His glory. We know that when we have our bodies raised from the dead at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we will have glorified bodies like Christ had. And we are going to partake, are going to participate in the glory of Christ. In some way, we're going to, going to share that glory. We're going to, to demonstrate that glory. I, I confess, I can't tell you much about what that is like. I am simply awed by the very revelation of this truth. But that's what Peter is telling us. We're going to participate in the glory that belongs to Christ. And we are going to be given honor. That means high rank. Again, honor belongs only to God. He's the only one who deserves to be honored for his greatness, for he is the only one who is truly great, the only one who is truly good, the only one who is fully righteous, the only one who is, who is really deserving of honor and praise. But God says, I'm going to exalt my children to high rank before the universe and you are going to be seen to be my children. I am going to be delighted with you. I'm going to be proud of you. I'm going to be happy to be identified with you. I'm going to be happy to own you before the whole universe. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to honor you if you have genuine faith. That is tested. Now, if that's what it takes trials, to enjoy these blessings, we almost are ready to say, bring it on, bring on more suffering. But of course, no, only as it serves God's purpose. So what are the lessons? Well, back to the original question, why suffering? Because there is sin. Suffering is a reminder of sin, and it is a reminder of the seriousness of sin. 
Is there great suffering in this world, as many people point out and complain and use that to criticize God and undermine faith in Him? You don't understand what this is teaching. Of course there's great suffering in this world because there's great sin in this world. Understand the greatness of sin, and then you'll understand the reason for the greatness of suffering. Why is there suffering for the sinner? It's a mercy of God to show him his sin and his need. If sinners never suffered, would they ever think about their need? Would they ever think about the claims of God upon their lives? Would they ever think about eternity and the suffering that might await them there? Of course not. And so even for the sinner... We've been talking about the saint this morning, but even for the sinner, suffering has a wise purpose. It's to show the sinner his sin, to show him his need, to point him to the only remedy for his sin and need in Christ. It's a gracious mercy of God to bring suffering into the lives of sinners. The worst thing that God could do would be to just let him go his own way, untroubled, unbothered, unhindered. Let him do whatever he wants to do and enjoy it without consequence until he dies and goes to hell. That would be the most unkind thing that God could do. Why suffering for the believer? Well, as we've seen, to test and purify his faith, to validate its genuineness and durability, to reveal its worth, to reveal its beauty. It's a beautiful thing to God. That's why he wants to refine it. Make it more conspicuous in its beauty. Here it is. Now it's a beautiful thing, but it's intermixed with with dross that is not all beauty. Therefore, God is going to refine it to make that faith the beauty that it really is, as he knows it to be, and to make that plain to others. He values our faith probably much more than we do, but we need to learn to value it like he does. So therefore, I conclude that when it comes to the trials of life, we should view our trials in the light of God's purposes. We should embrace our sufferings as purifications of our faith, and we should maintain a living hope as we wait expectantly the day of Christ's return and God's divine commendation of his children. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord. We see your wisdom, we see your grace, we see your love, we see your power. It's shown to us more clearly. And these words penned by Peter, inspired by your spirit, given to your children, taught to us your children by your spirit this day. Forgive us for our complaining, questioning attitudes. Those need to be Burned up, that's dross. Give us, Lord, a pure faith, all faith, a strong faith, an unmixed faith, a faith that brings honor and praise to you, and a faith that you will praise and glorify and honor someday. We ask in Jesus' name.